to Who Owns the Stars, an Expanse recap podcast where we discuss every episode in near excruciating detail. I'm one of your hosts, Kat, and this is my co-host, Nina. Hello. Today. today... Are we going to say it at the same time? (laughs) No, please. I would love for you to intro us. I'm like, we should do it at the same time. But yes, today... We are talking about season one, episode six, uh, titled Rock Bottom. Um, I actually wasn't able to figure out why this, like the meaning behind the title of this episode. I don't know if you had any thoughts about it now that we've watched it. I do. Okay. At some point, Dawes says to Miller, I don't remember which episode he says it in, but he tells him at some point when you hit rock bottom, that's when you'll have to choose your side or something along those lines. You'll know how to find your way home. Something Uh, along those lines. And then this is the episode where he literally like hits rock bottom. Okay, cool. So we can talk about it in the recap. So yeah, this is titled rock bottom. And also now that you're saying it, it reminds me of what we're seeing with uh, what we saw with Diogo and his uncle and like how that, plot progressed um which was it's always hard to watch it because like you know what's happening but by the end of it you're just like really stressed for Diogo being stuck in the middle of space uh but I I, yeah now now that you're explaining it 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 kind I feel like it connects to that story as well so this episode was uh just like the previous episode was directed by Rob Lieberman um, but it was written by Jason Ning, who right now is actually an executive producer on Lucifer. I don't watch Lucifer. Interesting. But I, I know it's a, a popular show. So I've watched a couple episodes of the first season of Lucifer. Thoughts? Um, <laughs> not that any fan of Lucifer would want to hear. <laughs> I'm so we- Kudos to it for getting five seasons uh would you like to lead off the recap uh for this episode absolutely so we can start with earth since that's fairly small we see avasarala again it's been a minute and we see her find a way to install a spy on Tycho station so she can figure out what holden and the rest of the crew is up to meanwhile holden um it explains to the crew that he logged a distress call which leads to a schism but ultimately they choose to stick together as they head out to Eros because Fred Johnson needs them to find his spy Lionel Polanski and meanwhile Miller almost gets killed by Anderson Dawes but before that they take a little stroll down memory lane Ooh, great summary where would you like to start We could start with Earth since there's not too much going on. And I think we might have a lengthier discussion for some of the other stuff. I was about to say, um, I was like, I don't actually have, like, I'm looking at my notes right now and I literally have six bullet points in the recap. And I'm going to say, oh, I don't have many thoughts about this episode. But knowing us, like, that means this episode is going to be one of our longest. So let's let's just get into it. Um, Avasarala wants to install a spy on Tycho Station. I think what she specifically said was like she was suspicious of Fred Johnson and she said something about his sort of earther ties. 
And we have had a big discussion about Fred Johnson. I think way bigger than I was uh, either of us were expecting. Absolutely. Um, there was so much to <laughs> I say don't about it. Discussion that was as lengthy as that one. So, yeah. Fred Johnson fans, I hope you enjoyed it because I mean, it's 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 great. I I feel like when I watch this show, I don't usually have that much to say about Fred. I just like he's just he's good. Like his character is good at what he needs to do to serve the plot. But it's nice to think about him more as like an, as an actual character and like what are his themes and all that stuff. So, yeah, Avasarala talks about him as like sort of this Earther who's kind of desperate to come back to earth I think which is interesting because I kind of get the opposite sense like of him as a leader of the OPA I don't feel like he's desperate to get back to earth I feel like he's he's desperate to lead the belt to revolution um but kind of what we see in this episode and what we'll see later is Fred is more of a I would say he's sort of in between both of those perspectives he's he is a belter with the born as an earther so a lot of what he wants is is peace because he was born on earth and he believes that's achievable and so Avasarala's uh perspective of him feels like her projection of him um but I also thought it was interesting because Avasarala doesn't get a lot of material in this season for like obvious reasons but I started in the same way that Miller and Holden are like sort of thematic opposites or character foils. I kind of feel, I, I wonder if like you can make that same comparison between Avasarala and Fred Johnson, where they're both, they're both leaders of their respective nations, so to speak. And they both have complicated ties to the other side. I don't know if you, if you had those thoughts. I did not, but well, I like, <laughs> I had not really considered them as, foils or their theme like or really sharing themes all that much but now that you speak about it I kind of see where you're going Mm -hmm. and I do think I agree I do think that her misunderstanding of Fred Johnson or him wanting to come back to earth is her earth first mentality coming back into play because she can't really imagine why or how someone would genuinely leave Earth behind. It's, that's, like, you saying that is suddenly, like, ringing alarms, because every character in every episode so far, or in every episode, there's been at least one character that's like, how could you leave Earth? And I'm I'm starting to realize that that's, like, a huge theme of, of this particular season, of, like, characters who are born on Earth, and the decisions they make to, to to cut those ties or not cut those ties and why they make that decision. And it's, it's just like, wow, it's, it's a really strong theme. Definitely. I do wonder, and this might be a conversation to have at a later point for Fred Johnson. You know, you mentioned he's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. How does he see himself? Like, yes, he sees himself as a leader, but... I don't know if he sees himself as a revolutionary so much as a diplomat. Oh, yeah. But that might be something to get into a little later on. I, I Well, I think I would even say in this episode, there's a little bit of that when um, I, feel, I can feel us like just starting to talk about Fred again. So I feel like we might as well just start talking about Fred. Um, he has a really cool monologue when the 
Rocinante docks at Tycho Station, and um, Holden and Amos are like showing strength or whatever. And Holden's, you know, doing his best. Or trying to. <laughs> yeah, Holden's really trying to sell an image. Um, I think he says like we've got like we've got a ship full of like pissed off Martian Marines, and then Fred has this sort of speech where he just cuts them down to the like their smallest core. Um, and it's I think it's a really good display of like who Fred is and how smart he is because like we we had his intro in the previous episode and we know there's w- this weird dichotomy of the man he was and the man he's trying to be. But I feel like in this monologue, you you kind of like can't forget that Fred is still a very dangerous man and he's very good at being dangerous um and he's a military man like first and foremost so that was really cool but what i was meaning to say is that in that scene um fred talks about using holden and the team as bargaining chips he specifically says like it's okay to be a pawn um especially when it's i I don't know when you're for the good guys or something like that Mm -hmm. but he's talking about them as a bargaining chip to basically have a seat at the table and the concept of having a seat at the table is uh, contentious, I think, for Belters. And this, again, we are we are talking way far in advance, but it might as well be good to talk about what are the perspectives being brought in now. Fred is sort of like, you're right, he's, he's a diplomat. And I think this episode touches on that and touches on what are Fred's motivations as a leader of the OPA. And it's interesting because in the same episode, you have Dawes, who is not really like that at all. And I'm actually kind of curious why we don't really see Dawes and Fred really um, interact because I think this is the episode where we learn that Fred had dispatched the Scopuli from Ceres Station. But right. then we also know in the previous episode, or maybe it's this episode, that Dawes had uh told Julie, I think, to go on the Scopuli. So both mm-hmm. of these men are involved with the Scopuli, and both of them presumably have this leadership position, but they don't really talk to each other. And I'm like, we know that they're sort of factions. So I'm wondering why we never really get to see them like kind of go head to head yet, so to speak. I wonder if it's a way of having us as the audience question more about both of their motivations because if we saw them interacting I think their motivations would be less murky to us because then we would just say oh they're OPA they're working together Mm -hmm. and when they're on their own that gives you more space to say what are what is motivating them she said for the third time (laughs) like who are they out for is Dawes out for himself or is he really concerned about belters is Fred genuinely concerned about the belt or is this you know an earther mentality where he's finding a new group to lead yeah you really get the sense that the OPA is not a single governing body they're really a an alliance as the acronym states an alliance of of people with different interests but ultimately you know working together for the same thing 
Um, and I, I, I guess like, as we're saying it, I appreciate that this early on in the show, they do have these different perspectives of people in the OPA because one of the sort of, I'll touch on it, but there's like, it, it's a whole episode in itself. But one of the problems with fantasy racism or any sort of fantasy science fiction show that depicts, you know, marginalized people is that there's usually one or two characters that kind of represent like that do a lot of heavy lifting to represent very, very broad viewpoints, um, mostly to serve the, the the main character's journey. Whereas in six episodes, we've got two leaders of the OPA. We've got Miller, who like does not care about the OPA. We've also got Naomi, who may have had connections to the OPA, but really is interested in distancing herself from them as much as possible. We've got Julie, who uh, has also you know, run with the OPA. And not all of these characters are belters, but all of these characters are embroiled in this belter mission. So I, I, I do appreciate that the show this early on is is slowly showing us different perspectives and telling us, like, it's not as easy as boiling it down to one person representing the entirety of the belt. Yeah. And that's actually really good because in other shows when you're dealing with this, you know, fantasy race type situation, they don't always make the effort to differentiate how people even who have common interests and goals can differ in their methodology and their singular beliefs. Yeah. So that's actually really fascinating. It's I'm glad that they went that route. We're like being so polite about it, but I'm like, this is my favorite part about this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about the favorite part, which was the self-determination. And mm-hmm. if you're going to write a story about self-determination, you have to outline who are the players. It can't just be one person who's like the good other or the good savage and have them do all the heavy work. Right. So, kudos to the to the writers. Um, since we already kind of started in on the crew, do we want to just keep going there? Sure. Let us do that. What are your thoughts? So I think that this is maybe the episode where we can definitely say that they're working as a more cohesive unit and crew, even though it's also the episode where they are not on the same page. Yeah. But they also have, once again, like a tangible threat to unite against, which is Fred Johnson and Tycho Station as a whole. So it is nice to see Holden and Amos going out there, but we still have Naomi and Alex finding a way to back them up, even though they're still on the ship. Um, I do like at the end of this episode, they make like a conscious, verbal and deliberate decision that, okay, we really are a crew we're together in this (laughs) so that was nice I I agree and I think this is and not to like bring back up complaints about pacing but I felt like this was sort of the first time even though we've had multiple episodes where they're trying to stay alive trying to survive trying to battle each other's perspectives I feel like this is the first time where they like genuinely just like wanted to be around each other Mm-hmm. Even the simple stuff of like Amos and Alex at the bar and well, and then Naomi and Holden at the bar, even those things 
paired with like the fact that like you're saying Amos and Holden are sort of the 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 guns in this situation and Alex and Naomi are are supporting them in the way that they can even though they might not be as like strong I guess and I like it I look at Holden I'm like really like you're a tank <laughs> like and only because Amos is so much like this like big uh uh aggressive person and then I look at Holden I'm like okay you like I, I believe you but he hasn't like beat many people up so I think that's why I'm like sure I guess mm-hmm. he would be the person to choose I I would almost I'm starting to notice um the fact that Naomi does not do any of these things. And you can also say Alex doesn't do any of these things. Um, and that's sort of a theme that kind of comes up that these two really don't get as involved in the violence, which is kind of nice from a like a, a perspective of, of characters who tend to experience more violence on screen. But um, it's, yeah, I just, I just liked seeing them talk to each other and sort of, dig into like each other's perspectives and actually feel not maybe not like a family but feel like friends at least yes and it is nice to see them be friends but it is also interesting how holden's confession changes that dynamic entirely because oh before now it's been amos and naomi and then sometimes holden and alex but only because they're not like yeah close the way that Amos and Naomi are but it also shows you that they really did do a good job of building Naomi and Amos's relationship because you can genuinely feel his hurt when he realizes that she did not tell him and that she was not only afraid of his reaction but as he puts it you were afraid of me yeah that's one of my quotes that I've written down (laughs) it's so it's heartbreaking because even the delivery and like, I I have to go listen to he that. He does interview. great eye work in that scene. <laughs> His eye work is impeccable from the minute Holden is, and they have this, and the way that film that scene is shot is really interesting because you've got this like, um, offhand shot of Amos sort of like I think fixing a gun or something while they're talking, but they establish that shot because then the minute Holden says, I'm the one who logs his distress call, they go back to him on that shot and suddenly he's like paying attention and it's scary. Like I, I you see the that. The way his body, he, like he straightens and yeah. tenses. It's like you don't You can want- see the potential for violence in him. <laughs> yeah. You don't want Amos to be, to, to look at you like that basically. And, and it's, it's tense. And even Naomi is like, please do not make a mess <laughs> but it's it's heartbreaking because he does that you, you know you're like you're saying his body sort of snaps to attention and then it snaps again to naomi because it's like okay the captain's talking and he's genuinely shocked by her admission that she knew that this was happening and amos is not someone at this point who is 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 very open about his emotions and so seeing him watch naomi tell him that she lied to him and seeing him process that fact knowing who he is as someone who like trust like deeply trusts Naomi to sort of tell him what to do which they sort of hint at in um episode three where he's like you know I knew you were always trying to do the right thing and that's hard in a world where people don't try to do the right thing so Amos looks to Naomi as this 
as much as we've been saying she's not really a moral compass, Amos looks to her as kind of a moral compass. And seeing him process the fact that this person he trusted so deeply, like, chose to hide something so important from him, it it hurts. <laughs> and it's also the realization that he, the fact that he said, you were afraid of me, is like, he knows what he's capable of. And it's like his own fear of, of himself that he could make- She's validating it, that he's someone yeah. that should be feared and cannot- be trusted to react in an appropriate way yeah it's 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 whereas he he saw you know her presence and her continued relationship with him as being okay you know maybe i'm not so bad yeah but if she can't trust him especially when all this time that we've spent with them it's been almost like them against the world like he's really cut deep but now I have a question for you, and it's not sure. something that necessarily has to be answered in full at this moment. But I will answer it in full, <laughs> as we do. Um, do you feel like their relationship like fully recovers from this? Because I always, and this is something I want to pay more attention to from this point, is it feels like they're never quite the same after this. Not that he doesn't forgive her, but something about their interactions feels different. He seems less likely to just kind of listen to her the first time she says something, you know? Well, we we know that... um, Yeah, I think I'm going to get into some light spoiler territory by answering this, so I'll, I'll try my best. But we know that in a couple seasons that is exactly what happens. They they can't, they're trying to repair something that has been fundamentally broken. But I don't think, I don't think this moment connects to that. But I will say like, thinking about Amos's arc in the second season, which again, light spoilers, but it's it's him really trying to start making his own decisions and trying to trust himself as as somebody who can make a good decision. Um, Now that you're saying this, I'm wondering if this is the moment that pushes him to feel like that. Because like you, I definitely did not pay attention to like how their relationship changes. I'm just thinking of the episodes that happen, uh, that that go till the end of this season. And to me, I'm like, uh, it's, you know, it's the same as always. It's, It's Amos following Naomi, but you know, maybe he's learned to trust the others a little bit more. But I never thought about it in the context that, like, he never trusts Naomi quite the same way again. But I don't, like, okay, let's, let's if that happens, I I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. I, I Right. Like, uh, well, it sounds like you agree. I, well, why don't you maybe talk about why you don't think it's a bad thing? <laughs> no, I like, I think that it's maybe a moment where he realizes, I don't really have a choice but to stand on my own. And it's not that he cannot rely on her as somebody that he cares about, but he has to maybe start doing the work to formulate his own code as opposed to just needing somebody to constantly direct him. Absolutely. So I guess I will be watching now to see Mm -hmm. if there are any interactions that kind of hint at this through the rest of the season but good point 
You know, we'll see. Separating from Naomi, it gives both of them the opportunity to interact with Alex and Holden. Because essentially, at this point, up until this point, they've essentially been acting as each other's like buffers. And Alex and Holden really haven't had the opportunity to interact with them one on one. So now we get we get to explore those relationships a little more. Yep, I totally agree. Um, I did. Of, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, so go speaking ahead. of one of those relationships or dynamics, I guess Amos and Alex at the bar. Um, I thought it would. I actually really like. I mean. You know me. I really like the dynamic between Amos and Alex in general. Um, but this is one of the those first scenes that, like, create a dynamic between them. Um, and it's interesting that sort of Alex is the nervous one in that situation, and Amos feels, like, completely at home at the bar. A side note, Amos, as much as we've been talking about um, sex work and the way that science fiction tends to, like, demean sex work amos is like kind of a a big uh um what is it called he fights for sex workers like for their for their uh humanity which is really nice to see um maybe he's not like an activist but he's he shows more concern than most people do not only in this show but in science fiction or other and in the real shows world that portray sex workers in general and yes in the real world i really appreciate that he he just kind of lays that out he's like look these people are just using their labor in a way that makes them a living and that's they're not hurting other people um and he kind of implies that like you know there are other forms of work that really hurt other people these people are not hurting anybody at the same time the little interaction he has with one of the guys who approaches him, he understands that it's still a very dangerous job and that you, they, these people need to like look out for each other. Um, right. And he sort of touches a little bit on his backstory, which I actually don't know fully. Um, I only know from like bits and pieces of what the show says and uh, like one thing that Anna Marie Cox on the churn dropped. And I was like, what? Um, so I don't know too much about his his story back in Baltimore, but he talks about how Anna Marie. Going- but sidebar, Anna Marie Cox, if you ever want to come on the podcast, oh, please my. do. Please, <laughs> we love you, girl. We love. I mean, you can bring Dan with you if you want to, but you know, he can be would- your plus one. <laughs> I would love to have both of them. I guess, like big sidebar, um, the the switch to. I, I wasn't listening to the churn to be to be fair. I don't like listen to a lot of podcasts in general, but the change to bring um, Anna Marie Cox and and Dan, I think Dan Dresner is his last name, to bring yeah. them on the show. Love their perspective. I love that they approach the show from like a geopolitical lens, and they're just great. And every time I was listening to them, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I think. Like, so cool. You keep going, girl. Um, so if yeah, if. Anna Marie Cox would like to join us <laughs> on Who Owns the Stars. We would be happy to have you here. Um, but but the the point is that, yeah, she she made an interesting connection about something that happens in a later season that of like made my jaw drop because I didn't know that Amos had experienced something that she mentioned in his life. So yeah, just cool to see Amos like have that story. 
We've discussed the possibility of doing maybe like character spotlights. Don't hold us to it. But please hold us. You know. But <laughs> How are we going to But if we we probably no, we're probably going to do it. <laughs> but um if we do when we do Amos's episode, we will probably read the churn for that one, right? I or, oh, I assumed you had read it. I, I have not read the churn yet. I have Ooh. not, but it's on my list. I keep going back and forth. Like right now, I'm on book six. Okay. And I keep going back and forth. Like, do I want to just go straight through the rest of the series and then read the rest of the short stories? Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of dependent on the podcast. Like, I hadn't intended on reading The Butcher of Anderson Station, but. Once we got to the episode, it just made sense. Yeah. When so does we'll see. like is there like a chronological time when you should be reading the churn, or is it really just like at any point? I mean, I think you could probably read the churn for like Amos heavy storylines, mm-hmm. just to get more insight into the way he thinks and how his background informs the way that he's acting now. Mm-hmm. So if we do end up reading, it might be like for season two, right? Mm, okay maybe we'll do like one short story a season you say as i have not read (laughs) we i I we're a unit we're a united front i have read book one though i finished it i actually wasn't supposed to finish it because i was trying to read along with the episodes that we are watching and book one obviously ends after season one but i was like i'm not gonna stop because the next time we watch we review season two is we we don't know exactly when that'll happen yet. So I was like, I can't stop this book in the middle of it. But um, yeah, it'll be cool. Um, so yeah, that's cool stuff about Amos. Um, skipping over Alex because of our code. Um, the other member I wanted to talk about in the team, Team Rosinante, was Naomi. Um, she also gets. I mean, everybody gets a little bit of backstory in this episode and Naomi from what she talks about you really get this you really get the sense of her being somebody that is about self-preservation like there's that little monologue at the end where she's not uh she's sort of hesitant to like to toast to the Martian soldiers that died for them (laughs) and it's like to be fair it's like okay Naomi like they you know they they literally sacrificed themselves (laughs) to be fair like we can give a toast, um, but her point is that she's like she's like those people didn't have to, you know, believe in their duty to Mars, which is sort of the Martian mindset of like everything right. we do is for Mars. And boy, I cannot wait till we get into that um, later in the show. But she's like she's like it doesn't matter whether they were Martian soldiers or Mormons or OPA extremists. She's like all of these people are fighting for something that is beyond them and they are putting themselves in harm's way. And she's kind of like, I don't understand. Um, she's kind you of like, know, I don't like under- she, w- no, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I was going to say she, cause she's kind of like, I don't understand why someone would, or maybe the, it's not that she doesn't understand. It's that she's seen the consequences of that. And she doesn't believe again. She doesn't believe in causes. She's not going to be someone's scapegoat. She doesn't believe in causes because they get people killed. And this, situation is exactly that people like the martian soldiers people like those who work under fred johnson get killed in service of a greater good and she doesn't i I get the sense that she doesn't believe in the greater good or i may i 
there's yes the greater good but also convincing people to believe all in one thing to the point where they will prioritize that over human life even if that includes themselves yeah actually as we're talking about it it reminds me of christian avasarala because avasarala is like almost the opposite she you know earth must come first as we'll see later in the show she's very much believes in saving um humanity preserving humanity oh like she's a greater good kind of person we we um talked about this i think in episode three or maybe episode four episode three when christian talks to de graff um and he says you know he tells her he's like the thing i learned about you is that you'll do anything to win and that's what got your father killed which kind of implies that like maybe her life is is in distress too but um (laughs) he, he he says it as like a fear of hers um and she we we talked a little bit about like Christian's uh uh utilitarianism belief and de Graff's deontological deontological de yeah belief so like the ends justify the means versus the means themselves have to be morally correct i kind of see naomi and and christian as similar positions um, where, where one of them believes that there is a greater good to aspire for and it's worth prioritizing that over everything else. And Naomi is does not believe in that. Um, but it, less out of a sense of like people need to make the right choices and more out of like people need to protect themselves. So it's mm-hmm. almost like a, almost I would say a slightly selfish perspective. And I say selfish like as a neutral word. Nope. I know. I think I definitely understand where you're like what you're saying. Yeah. And I don't have anything to add, but I like it. <laughs> cool. Well, one other thing I actually had about Christian since we're sort of talking to her is about her is um, I, I kind of realized she's not preoccupied with morals. Like she's not preoccupied no. with being the good guy. Like, you know, that first scene we see of her, she's threatening. Um, I think the guy's name is Carlos. She's threatening him and his son. Um, to get what she wants, and she's perfect. Five feet away from her own grandson. Yeah, <laughs> and like I'm like you, your son, ma'am. What's going on here? But you know, she's she's she. That's the kind of person she is. And again, going back to Christian and Fred, where we talked about you sort of brought up in the butcher of Anderson Station the way Fred talked about the choices that he made. Um, in massacring the Belters where he didn't just follow orders. He was fully aware of what he was doing and he believed it was the right thing to do. And he didn't really care if that made him a good or a bad guy. He just knew that this is what needed to be done. And I feel like that's how Christian acts as well, where she is, she does what needs to be done and she's not interested in being the good guy because she doesn't believe that that's how, that's how you maintain peace. Um, which, you know, works in certain contexts and then doesn't work in other contexts, which I think is what makes her an interesting character. Maybe not a interesting person in real life. I, I probably wouldn't be a fan of Krishna Vasarala in real life, but I think as a character, it's there's a lot to dive into with that. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll probably, like, in season one, they're really kind of building her up. And you can see in 
episodes like this and the last one, it becomes clear. Yeah, she definitely was not present in the first book. But when we get more material for her later on, it is exciting and there will be a lot to discuss about her. Yeah. Um, I had one more thing about Naomi and then I'm I'm done with my my Rosadante notes. Um, but um, the last thing, well, it's kind of a quote. So I, I don't know if I should save it, but I'm just going to say it because we keep trying to put the quotes as a separate section. And I keep pushing that and being like, no, thank you. Um so she sees the quote section, then she goes, so anyway. <laughs> I said, respectfully, I disagree. Uh, so this is a quote that I, 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 I'm looking at the way I wrote it, and it's in all caps with exclamation points. Um, when they're getting ready at the when the team, like, comes together at the end, which is great. Again, it's, this, is, this is actually a really, like, I don't have much to say about this episode, but I think it's because I was just enjoying the episode, like, and it felt like thing everything everybody had something to do, um, which kind of makes up for the slower paced previous episode. Um, so she, at the very very end, she goes up to Fred when they're getting ready. They're finally going to Eros. Oh no, they're not going to Eros. Oh sorry, oops, they're not going to Eros yet. They're going to go find the Scopuli. Um, she goes to Fred. And she's like, okay, like, we'll do this, you know, knowing that she's like not happy. She says, in return, I want you to help me find someone. And someday I'll come to you with a name, no questions asked. And boy, did I jump 10 feet in the air when I heard that. If you, if we were, you know, sitting beside you on the couch watching this episode, this is when we'd be like, remember that, pay attention. Like, I would stop. I would pause it and be like, let's play that again. Do you hear what, what's being said here? Um, and This will be on the exam. <laughs> yeah. And I guess for, for resolution's sake, this is one of those things that actually gets addressed way later. Thank- there are just, you know, certain shows like this. And, like, I don't want to bring up game of thrones because it's very easy to dunk on game of thrones and i don't have anything new to say but one of the complaints of a game of thrones is like you had all these little threads that were introduced but they never resolved them and this is one of those threads that could have been dropped that could have just been like you know we're not going to come back to this but they do and it's it's when it happens man i love naomi me too, man. And that's the end of my thoughts. I have literally one bullet point left on this episode. Um, I have a few more things. So, you know, you can cheat off me. It's okay. <laughs> cool. Um, I think, you know, just to spend just a moment on Holden, I think that season one in this episode and episode one prior to the Kant explosion probably give us the best idea of what Holden's like when he's not, you know, in crisis because the version of him that we see hanging out with Naomi I think could probably be reconciled with who how we see him interacting with other crew members prior to the cans explosion because this is the first time where they have you know like a decent amount of downtime and no one's actively trying to imprison or kill them So that's nice. It's nice to see that. And we don't, 
after this, we don't get to see him be <laughs> He's never lighthearted for a little minute. This so. show ages Holden literally by 20 years. And I, <laughs> I think so far it's only been like a few years that have passed. Yeah. I don't know the timeline. Guy. You know, book-wise, the book will start by giving you like a rough estimate of how long it's been since the last incident. And I'm not, the show's timeline feels more compressed, but we're also not seeing them spend like forever traveling from place to place because space is big as fuck and TV has a tight timeline. That's a good point. So I'm not really sure either. I'd probably put season one as like, I don't know, maybe six months. That's long. I would maybe make it three. Yeah, maybe a few months. Because I'm just trying to factor in travel time. Right. But, you know, it's something to wonder about. But it doesn't necessarily detract from our understanding of what's happening. Yep. But I do think if we had to choose a theme, it would probably be about valuing the power of teamwork. (laughs) I don't disagree. But you know, like you don't have to take on these huge tasks on your own when you have a support system to help you. Like Holden is ready to take on Fred Johnson's mission by himself. And the crew's like, we're right here. Obviously, we're coming with you. Yeah, I I appreciate I guess maybe now is the time we can talk a little bit about Holden's hero complex, which would be great for a, a character study episode, but since we're here, uh, we might as well talk about it. But I, I, one of something I appreciate about the show is the way Holden tries to fit into the constraints of being a hero, and the show doesn't let him. Like, yes, he's the main character, and there are certain points where, like, it, it's all on him. But for the most part, it's not. And this is one of those moments where, like, if this was any other show, I think the character would have kind of just, I don't know, like. W- the, the the rest of the team would have sort of been dragged on the trip to the Scopuli as opposed to been like actively affirming that they want to come. And so then you would have seen a criticism rise up where it's like, well, the main character is this hero, but they kind of, it's all their fault that all this is happening and everybody's being like put dragged down with their mistakes, which I always feel like is kind of an unfair criticism because I think that has to do more with the writing of protagonists and heroes um, as opposed to like the protagonists themselves like I think there are certain established writing practices that that need to be thought about because people are starting to react negatively to them so I always feel bad when like protagonists kind of get heat for things that are just sort of accepted but the point is that in this you know they're Holden's like fully like I have no intention of sacrificing you basically because he sees himself as the main character. He sees himself as the protagonist. And he's trying to make that choice where it's like, I'm not going to drag you with me. These are my mistakes. I'm going to own up to them. Which is great. But then it's nice to also see the other characters have agency and be like, you are you are not the main character. Like, just because, you know, just because you sent out the message, basically, doesn't mean that you are, A, responsible for everything that's happening, or B, responsible for fixing it. You know, we are going to help you because we like you and because we're in this as much as you have been. Exactly. 
Um, I do also want to mention something about Amos being the last one to come back. Ooh. Or, I mean, I genuinely think he was just wrapping up, you know, whatever the hell he gets up to. <laughs> he was, doing the, he was uh, spray painting the ship. Right. But I do wonder, you know, Naomi apologizes to him. And I do wonder if this is the first time that anyone has ever gen- like given him a genuine apology. Oh, right. They resolve it. Oh, that's nice. You know, and I do wonder if, like, I wonder if that factors into his decision to be part of the team. Yeah. Because his reaction to her, he's almost surprised when she apologizes. Like, he thought they were just going to push past it and not really discuss it. So it's a, it's a small moment, but it's very sweet. Yeah, like, the t- with them specifically, like, there are basically, I feel like, multiple ways this dynamic could have been written. And, like, where it's really one-sided or really only one character gets the development. But I feel like as this relationship progresses, you really look into both characters and what they feel about each other and what they feel about themselves in relationship to each other. So, yeah, it's it's just a great scene for exactly what you said. And also for Naomi to kind of realize that she well maybe not to realize but for us to realize that Naomi really does respect Amos and it really does hurt her when she has to sort of keep things from him or 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 lie to him or anything like that she doesn't see him as just like dead weight she doesn't see him as like just like a tank she does and that's what attracted Amos to her in the first place is because she was one of the only people who really valued him as a person um yeah I love that I guess since we're talking about small moments um Holden making coffee for everybody I loved that and I, I love that like he did it for everybody because he could have just given it to say Naomi because you know they've bonded yeah but crush on her <laughs> but giving it to everyone it feels like that really affirms them as a unit you know it's so cute I it's it's moments like that that I'm like, I love that they're a little family. Like, they genuinely, well, they become. We're like, we're going way too far in the future. But, you know, they, like, are working to become a family. And I appreciate that the show prioritizes that over necessarily, like, a romance that they could have had at this point. It's really, like, the team as a whole that matters. But mm-hmm. I love the coffee. I was I was going to say, you've, you've brought this up, but... um. It sounds like it's the real dynamic of, like, the actors. <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to talk about that. Oh, I think it was Dominique's interview with Anna Marie Cox. Classic. Uh, we so love good. Anna Marie Cox. But she mentions that Stephen Strait, who plays Holden, is, like, the team mom or whatever. He will <laughs> gather snacks and stuff when they want to go over their scripts. I'm like, this is the sweetest thing in the world. Yeah. That's nice. Um, but do we want to move on to series or do we want to go for the runner in between scenes with Diogo? Oh, I totally forgot about Diogo. I didn't really have any, I didn't have any notes on him. I, I assume, it sounds like you do. I do. Why don't More we go than to- I actually thought I would. Whoa. Why don't we go to that? Because I feel like series is going to be a big oh yes big thing to talk about (laughs) so I think that this episode is 
also another illustration of how in this situation, cops and military are they're primarily concerned with protecting property over people. But we've kind of seen them discussed or portrayed as a whole, where or maybe macro versus micro, where this episode zeroes in on how these people as individuals interact with belters. So we see they just take it upon themselves to bully and belittle this disadvantaged ice hauler for no real reason other than disrespect that gets on their nerves. Yeah, And it's really fascinating to me that you like, they're out there and they have all of this power. And you can see it's clearly gone to their heads to the point where they're comfortable with sentencing somebody to death. That was really like, that was a shocking moment for me. Just because he cussed you out. like. Yeah. But I do think there is a real world analog there because how many people get assaulted just on like basic driving violations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see how that translates into space. Um, the scene where Diogo's uncle throws him out of the airlock. It is, but I do think it's interesting that it comes directly off of Miller and Anderson Dawes' conversation where they discuss sacrificing loved ones because of the conditions that have been created directly by Earthers and Martians. So we see how that plays out directly after we see it discussed. Yeah. So I thought that that was... Fascinating, but how do we feel about Diogo's uncle? I, I mean, I was, I really loved um, the part where he said, "A man's got to stand up." Like that. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a quote that I was thinking about before we were watching it because I, I like remembered it, and it just resonated so much because he's saying it from like a, um, you know, from a personal perspective. His, he's, you know, he's feeling really embarrassed and ashamed and his pride has been taken from him. But it's also, it speaks to the themes of Belters overall that they, they, you know, there's only so much that they can take before something bursts, before the boiling point is reached, before the the frog jumps out of the pot, I think, to lift from your analogy. (laughs) But it's, it was, it's really tragic. And but it makes sense, and I think it's necessary. Um, I like, you know, I I feel like we're both like cautious when we see like violence play out in a way that's like meant to send a message on screen. Because sometimes it's more for the sake of showing violence as opposed to like, you know, saying something interesting. But I think this was a, I think this was a good way of doing it because in the end, the person that's left behind is um is Diogo and. And it's sort of the question is like, well, what's going to happen next? What is he going to do? How is he going to carry on the legacy of his uncle who basically sacrificed himself? Did he like, what did he do? Did he like run into the Martian ship, I think? Yeah, he ran through their um, barricade. Yeah. They were supposed to let him through, but because they wanted to be assholes. Yeah. he didn't even like I assume he didn't even like you know hurt the ship he literally did it to send a message so it's like how do you 
for Diogo, the question is going to be, how do you honor that legacy of someone who, you know, in the final moments of his life, stood up to the forces that were oppressing them? It's just, you know, it's it's just tragic. And no, it's great. I mean, it is tragic. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great story that they tell in just a few short scenes. And I do actually want to mention at some point, this could have waited till notable quotables, but here we are. <laughs> He's, um, Uncle Mateo says, we can only live so long with a boot on our necks. Ugh, the language. The and that, exactly. It had, like That's clearly a direct call back to Holden saying, you know, I didn't want to be the boot. But now we're actually seeing the perspective of the people the boot is actually stepping on. Yep, yep. Like, Holden has the choice to not be the boot, but no one chooses to get stepped on. And, you know, I think that's something that we're going to keep returning to. That's honestly one of the most important quotes from the show, but it's also one of Holden's most important, like, character-defining moments. So now that we've touched on Diogo, I think we can head on to series, right? So to start off, Miller has a very cynical response when Dawes talks about how close they are to independence. Um, He goes, oh, so you just want a bigger cut of the dock profits. But here's the thing. Is that wrong for that to be one of their goals when most belters are living in poverty, even though they're doing the bulk of the labor? Why shouldn't they get more of the profits? Like, I don't think that that's something that they shouldn't desire. There's like a, there's a lot to unpack with the conversation that these two have. But with this moment, like I, like Miller is trying to say that uh, Anderson Dawes is only in it for himself. He's only in it so that he can gain power. And like you're saying, that's not like, A, that's maybe not what Anderson Dawes is doing. Maybe in some sense, he's like, yes, he wants to be the one to lead it. But also, it's not wrong for Dawes to... Dawes' perspective seems to be that everybody eats, basically. And so you get the sense that if Dawes becomes the leader, he will make sure that others feel that... um, Feel that... Get that fruit, basically. Right. But, but like there is self-interest in it, but there's self-interest in a lot of leaders. Yeah, like I was gonna say for Miller, you're currently a cop who takes bribes from people who control the air filtration system. Like where where do you get off telling other people that they are only interested in corruption when you are a part of that corruption yourself? You know, and Dawes just- points that out. He mentions like you exploit your own people and that's why julie if she was here would not even care to be around you oh yeah i kind of loved that quote (laughs) but yeah it's 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 i i I personally read it as the show drawing a line between this is miller's perspective but that doesn't make miller right he thinks Mm -hmm. that other people he thinks that he constantly think that thinks that Julie was being taken care of, uh, advantage of, and it's actually almost like a direct reflection of the scene we saw in the previous episode with him and um, Neville, the guy, um, the guy who used to work with Julie, where Miller is so <laughs> sure, <laughs> Miller is so sure that Julie was this innocent young girl 
who was taken advantage of by this like evil terrorist organization. Um, and Dawes, like Neville, has his own story to tell about Julie. And it, once again, you feel the absence of Julie. She's not. He's Dawes says if Julie was here, here's what she would do. But to be fair, Julie's not there. We don't know what she would do because we haven't met her, or, or, or the characters haven't met her. Um, and so again, it's like a battle of projections. But Miller so so strongly believes that Julie would not do these things or that Julie would not know that these are the things that are happening under her nose, which, you know, is kind of a disservice to Julie as much as it is a disservice to Julie to say that she fully knew what she was doing. Again, we've mm -hmm. talked about like, it's kind of, it's, it was probably somewhere in the middle. It was probably that she, she knew what she was getting into, but she didn't know maybe the consequences of it. Um, right. And she also had the, like whatever situation that she got into, she had, had the expectation that, somebody was going to help her yeah and the other thing is like you know if miller is so worried what makes julie so much more innocent than these young belter kids who join the opa because they feel like they have nowhere else to go like why is julie the one you know the the the, the rich earther girl why is julie the one who gets so much of the benefit of the doubt um what Miller like doesn't isn't interested in in the kids on on series, for example. He's not interested in protecting them from joining the OPA. And so again, like his connection to Julie isn't as as um, pure as he almost wants it to seem. Mm -hmm. So it's like, <laughs> I, I I'm saying this and I'm like I'm not trying to like bag on Miller, but it it's it's frustrating because he. he I don't know. He's almost kind of played as this like neutral investigator, but he's not. He has his own he has his own self-interests. He has his own cut of the profits that he wants. They just look different. Exactly. No, I I even love the way that you put that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but that whole scene like that whole scene, all of their interactions in this episode until rewatching to discuss it for the podcast, I did not realize, like, this is genuinely one of the best scenes in the show. Absolutely. Like, Dawes', Dawes story about his sister, I almost want to do, like, a whole scene breakdown of it. But before we get into it, mm -hmm. it's a good way of illustrating the way that Belters live and the direct impact that their environment has, not only on their physical bodies, but their mindsets. Because for him, it was almost like, I have to let her go to preserve the rest of us, which I do want to note is horrible. The woman died. I think the point, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think the point is that it's horrible that he felt like he was put in that position. Alternatively, though, it feels more than a little ableist. Mm. And I'm sure there's people who would be able to communicate it better than I would but I can't imagine being a disabled person I'm sure that it f did not feel great to hear him describe how she physically couldn't survive in this world and how that made her a burden on not only him but the rest of the family yeah and one of the and again I'm, I'm in your position I don't I I don't um, I'm not very well read on this, but one of the other things that I've kind of learned when it comes to, to disabilities and disability politics is 
something that ends up being considered a disability has a lot to do with how the world isn't shaped to um, accommodate you. And so not to say that like all belters are disabled, but there is a larger theme of like this world is not physically built to accommodate belters so that if they are born quote unquote too much like a belter, you know, and gravity drugs or all these bones, you know, all these drugs that they Mm -hmm. take, if that's not enough to let them, you know, quote unquote, live a normal life, then they, that those characters, like you're saying, Athena becomes almost um, a proxy for a disabled person in this world. And it becomes obvious how much the world isn't built for Belchers. And it's, yeah, like you said, it's, it's tragic. And it's, it's also, it is, it is uncomfortable to hear Anderson Dawes talk about it, like her being a burden because on one hand, yeah, we do understand that he's talking about it in the context of like the way Earth and Mars take the resources of the belt and leave the belters out to die. But on the other hand, it it's also that she's a she's a tool in his story. She's being used to tell the story of why he makes the choices that he does. She doesn't get mm-hmm. to be her own character. And I was actually going to say, not just from like a disability perspective, but from a gender perspective, you now have two women that are being, two girls, I would say, being discussed in this story who are kind of being used to tell a larger story between Miller and Dawes. And Mm -hmm. this is kind of where Miller is not wrong. Miller is not wrong in that, like, he accuses Dawes of of sacrificing others for his own gain. And that's, I don't disagree. Like, I think there's a fair, when, again, this show, it doesn't touch too much on gender politics, but there is like an underlying current of it. There, like, it is fair to say that Dawes, even though Dawes feels that these are the choices that he needs to make, the hammer, it keeps coming down harder on the people who are more marginalized, basically. So Athena is killed because he, he he sees her as a burden. Julie is sacrificed somewhat because he sees her as as sacrificed. an asset. As an asset. And and to be fair, again, like it's not just gender, it's also class, it's also race, not race, but you know, belter earther dynamic where Julie is this rich earther and and Dawes is not. But if we're thinking about it from just the lens of gender, leaders of movements that see the women as disposable and the ways that other um, other axes sort of come in, like we said, like with Athena sort of having technically a disability and, and, and Julie n- sort of uh, having advantages in other ways, at the end of the day, they're both still women who are being used as tools to, to tell the story of revolution. So exactly. I, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. So to actually like discuss the scene itself, I do think it's really great that up until they start talking about Dawes' sister, you can see his, I don't want to say henchmen, (laughs) you know, lackeys Mm -hmm. um, in the background. They're part of this. And it's almost like he's performing for them. But when he starts talking about his sister, the camera 
edges to the right to cut them out of the shot. Mm-hmm. And you, while he's talking, you almost forget that they're there. And it makes me feel like this, in this moment, if nowhere else, he's being genuine. It's yeah. like he's not, and there's just almost complete blackness behind him. He's no longer in this room. He's not here with Miller at that moment. He's reliving these memories as he tells this story. And meanwhile, when we cut back to Miller, I think Thomas Jane actually plays this scene very well. Mm-hmm. He looks like he's pulled in by Dawes, but that doesn't stop him from getting to the root of the matter, which is, you know, you killed your own sister. Yeah. But his reaction when Dawes finally admits to it, he looks disappointed almost. It's like he was hoping that it wouldn't be true. Oh. He's like, he feels the weight of that confession. And it really feels like the most, what's like the opposite of cynical at that moment? Uh, genuine? Like genuine? <laughs> I like genuine, I think is the word for it, that we've seen him to that point. There's no wryness or cynicism in his reaction. Yeah, almost and naive. No, go ahead. Uh, not, not naive, but mm-hmm. it, like willing to believe that what somebody is saying is true. Exactly. Yeah. And I do wonder if for him it almost confirms that Julie's most likely dead. Because if Dawes is gonna is willing to sacrifice his own blood, I mean, it doesn't really bode well for Julie, who, like Dawes said, knew what she was getting into. Yeah. And again, you're, you were getting into the ends justify the means kind of theme that's coming up exactly um yeah i loved that line where dawes said you know miller was like so you killed her and and dawes says and that makes me a monster because there's levels to that there are many levels to that there's the one level of us talking about how you know athena being disabled dawes seeing her as a burden so it it is monstrous in a way but then there's also the level of um being seen as a savage by the inners, which is a long running theme. Um, that's one of the very first thing that Dawes says when he meets him. He says, we can't act like the animals that the inners expect us to be. Mm-hmm. And Dawes, I feel like in that line is kind of also acknowledging that like, he, for him, he's like, I was forced into this position. I was forced to make this choice. And because I had to make this, I'm now, I'm the bad guy now. But the people who forced me to do this are not the bad guys. And he's, he's kind of pointing out, how is that, how is that fair? How is that exactly. fair to look at me and the individual choices I make and not at the system that forces me to make these choices and doesn't allow for any other, um, any other route? Because at that, in that moment, he had to treat his sister as disposable, but as a whole, the inners treat Belters as disposable. Exactly. Um, in general, one of my favorite things about him is just what like you can see him spinning a narrative almost yeah. at all times. And he immediately does follow, like you said, follow that story up to make sure you interpret those choices as circumstances he was forced into by capitalism. But he also at that moment goes right back to using the language of family and brothers and sisters Directly after explaining how he was willing to sacrifice his blood sister. That's a good point. I'm like, as we're talking, I'm kind of like, I think I just need to sit with this scene 
because there's so much that comes out of it so much um as for millet like and even it's almost like we're seeing him in from the camera's perspective we're seeing him from miller's perspective like the angle Mm -hmm. and miller's not fully swayed by the story on his own but somewhere around the moment where Dawes gets a little more flowery with his language, um, he says something like his tears turn to blood. Oh yeah. That is kind of the moment that's kind of the moment where Miller breaks, you know? He's yeah. he goes back to being the Miller that we're used to. Yeah. And it's also the moment where Dawes gets a little more performative again because then he goes, now I'll tell you the truth about Julie. And that's when the camera switches back and we can see um, his backup in the room again because now we're going right back to business. Love this shot by shot breakdown. <laughs> you know, I was, as I was watching, I was like, this is going to be so tedious to talk about, but <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I'm sorry. But... Yeah, I, I don't agree. disagree with him, but I don't disagree with him saying that Julie would dislike Miller because I think he's right. And I think we touched yeah. on that, right? Yeah, I, th- I think the conclusion we're coming to is that both of these characters are given the space to be right and be wrong. And we can understand why they have those conclusions. And it's kind of up to us to figure out where do we land on this. Definitely. Yeah. Um, as for when Miller gets fired. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, wait. One thing back to the... Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, with the... So this is the um, also the scene where Dawes... Where the audience kind of confirms that Miller is in love with Julie. Yeah. And I... Uh, how do I say this? <laughs> I'm not a fan of this. There are a few things I disagree with the show on or that I'm like, I think you should have done this in a different way. This is one of those things where I don't agree with how it played out. And it's not even the show. I think the book does this too. I think honestly in the show, I prefer how they handled it over. Oh, I like it in the book book better. But I'm like, I feel like you have more details like in your head. I think I'm going off of like what I remember. I I don't have more. (laughs) I just remember reading Leviathan Wakes. And as I'm rereading it while watching season one again, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, okay. So one thing I remember about the book is that in Leviathan Wakes, um, they're very, very clear that Miller is in love with Julie, but he doesn't love her. He's mm-hmm. in love with the idea of Julie, and that's his. That is a flaw in itself because it prevents him from from acting accordingly. Um, whereas I think the show's a little more ambiguous with that, where it's more just like you're in love with her, and that's why you're being so you know aggressive about this. And like they're kind of like maybe there's a truth to that, and it's like, mm, but there's not. Like you, you've never met this woman again. The absence of a woman on screen and falling in love with a projection of her, like that has to sort of be named. And I, I, I don't want to write off the show because I, I don't like again, I haven't we haven't watched the rest of the season yet, so I don't exactly remember how much that they talk about 
Miller's projections on Julie in terms of being in love with her. But it it is one of those things where I'm like, she's not here. You've never met her. You can't be in love with her because you don't know her. You only know what you think you know. Like, I like again, the gender of it all. Like, y- you are falling in love with who you think Julie is. And the show, to be fair, has had enough scenes where it's like Miller thinks that Julie is a certain way and he mm-hmm. loves her because of how he thinks she is. But what, I, she, what she represents to him. Yes, he's in love. Again, he's in love with the idea of her. But I... I, I think once we hit the point of, oh, you're in love with her, I don't think the show pushes back enough on that specifically. Um, so that's one part. And I think the show, I think the books push back a little bit more, obviously because we get Miller's inner monologue, uh, inner dialogue. So obviously we're going to see more of his contention with this concept. But that is part one. Part two is like, does Miller need to be in love with Julie? Like, is that the dynamic that needs to be established? Because I don't think it does. And I think thematically there was a better way of, first of all, Julie's like the youngest character in this show. So, and Miller's one of the older characters. So I'm kind of like, you know, it's a little odd. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But more importantly, Julie, and we'll learn this later. So I'm, is light spoilers but julie's biggest conflict is with her father and we see that i think there's a there's a scene in episode maybe two where miller's like reading her her files and like her voice messages and there's one scene you know one of the few scenes where julie gets to talk is when she's um rebelling against her father and she's saying like you oh my god it's a great quote she's like maybe what you hate most about me is that i you i remind you of you Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's established that julie's conflict is with her father it's not with a man that she loved it's not with somebody she slept with it's with her father that's where these problems start and so thematically it would have made more sense for me to for, for miller to see julie as a daughter to see julie as someone he could have raised better than her own father and it also would have played with the idea that you know he sees julie as this really innocent young girl who was taken advantage of and from a fatherly perspective that makes more sense because you never see your child as someone as worse than they are you are never going to be like my child would do these things would would do wrong you're always going to be like my child can do no wrong right and i think it would have made sense to to have miller have that perspective where he's so he fundamentally believes in Julie as a better person than him, almost as if if he had had a kid, he could have raised them to be better than him. Um, and it also touches on his backstory because I think in the books they talk about how he had a divorce and they never had kids. And there's even a line way back early in the first episode where he said, oh, I missed that train. I never had kids. And then he has that little scene with that little girl and the bird. That's and exactly just- what I was thinking of, like that as you were speaking about how he could have been that like, or desired to be that father that Julie maybe should have had. Yeah. That there's a little bit of setup for that. They had an opportunity to go that direction. Yeah. I just, and I, and this is really just a personal taste. I think like, Mm -hmm. Because I see him as capable of being the father figure, it's weird to me for them to then go the romance route because I'm like, wait, this is not my expectation. And now I have to adjust and I don't agree with the decision. 
But I just think it would have made more thematic sense to have him as, yeah, I don't know. And also seeing himself as someone that can be redeemed in her eyes in the way that her father was not. Mm-hmm. I just I feel like there's a lot more you could go into if he saw her as his child. And like, <laughs> that's a, so maybe if there are fans of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think a lot about um, Colson and Daisy. Yeah, Phil Colson and Daisy Johnson, and their, I mean, their relationship is, like, the core of the show, right? Yeah. Like, the romance is not really, the romance is not what attracts me to the show. The so, Sort of the most important relationship on that show is that of Colson and Daisy, and they're not related, but they feel such a strong attachment to each other. Colson sees her as his daughter, Daisy sees him as her father, and that is explored in so many different ways across seasons and so many different episodes so that by the time it ends, like she literally, she literally calls him dad, like at the end. So that's, I think that's why this reminds me of that, where it's like, it's almost a twisted version of that. Like the, the, the father that Julie could have had and the daughter that Miller could have had. So, but that's not the way the show is choosing to go. So yeah. I'll just stand here on my island. <laughs> but speaking of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the actress who plays Julie was in yes! season five, right? Yes, season five. Mm-hmm. She played a Sonara, who was yes. a, a Cree Like a warrior, alien. alien woman. I'm actually mad I didn't. You were the one who point, figured it out first, I think, right? No, actually, um, I watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with, Nina and another friend and I think it was Catherine who said oh yeah probably <laughs> that's all I had to say about Miller and Dawes nice. and Julie um, to wrap up series when Miller gets fired they choose to like explicitly show us that it's happening as a result of his interaction with Dawes by um, flashing the OPA tat on one of the men who escort him out. Mm, yeah. And I just thought, I mean, I understand why they chose to do it that way. Because his interaction with Dawes is different in the books. They don't interact quite as much, and it's not the same. But Dawes is actually present in the office in Leviathan Wakes when he gets fired, just to make it clearer for you mm-hmm. <laughs> that he had a hand in it. But I wonder why he's surprised that this is what's happening. That there are consequences to his actions. (laughs) Right. But it's also a great illustration of, you know, whatever bit of authority or privilege that you can gain as a member of a marginalized group, it's also very easily lost. Because just an episode or two ago, they were going all out for one of their fellow cops because, you you know, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us because of an attempted murder. But now we're saying about someone who was just part of your ranks five minutes ago, if he gives you any trouble, kill him. Yeah. Like, he's just like all the other belters that he saw as disposable after spending so many episodes telling them that he's different from them. But... Ultimately, he doesn't get to dictate. He doesn't get to dictate that. And and how do you feel about the fact that it's the OPA doing this and not... Because Star Helix is Earth-owned and Earth-controlled. So, like, 
How do you feel about the fact that like it's not really Earth doing any of these things? It's the OPA kind of kick, giving him the boot. I think it's kind of necessary because this whole time he's almost been acting as though he's untouchable because of his status as a cop. Mm-hmm. So the OPA gets to remind him that, hey, even if you think you're different, you're not. And so it wouldn't have been quite the same. I mean, the same mess, the core message would have been the same if it was in a decision made by an earther for him to lose his job. But I think that there's a little more bite to it when it's coming from the community that he's been trying to reject his whole life. Ah. And Shadid, in the books, she's on the book, Leviathan Wake, she's like explicitly OPA attached, mm-hmm. where she, it's only implied here. So, the layer. You get to maximize the impact of the cover up in the show. But I feel like had we known earlier that she was OPA or had ties to it, it would have added higher stakes to his story leading up to this, especially when he started interacting with Anderson Dawes, because Anderson Dawes was telling him to lay off this case around the same time that Shadid was telling him to lay off this case. So had we known explicitly, I feel like it would have just added higher stakes to the story. And him like trying to avoid both. Exactly. Who have power over him. Exactly. But that's about all I have to say about Sirius. Me as well. Um, do you have a lot of other quotes or small moments left? I have just a few. I have a few. So then you can knock that out. Okay. (laughs) This is not a a meaningful (laughs) quote, but um there's I'm like still thinking about it. It's so funny. But when uh Holden and when the Ro- the Rosinante lands at Tycho Station and then Holden and Amos come out, <laughs> um, uh, Fred Johnson's first words are like, he's like, Oh, James Holden. You must be the luckiest dipshit in the system. <laughs> oh, no, he yeah. says, he's either, you're a, he's either you're a genius or you're the luckiest dipshit. And just the delivery <laughs> uh. killed me. Oh my goodness. That was so funny. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that. Uh, the other quote I had was, we already talked about it, but it, it was between Amos and Naomi and and when he realizes why Naomi lied to him and he says, you were afraid of me. Just I just love the delivery of it. It's really great. great. Um, because Wes Chatham doesn't have a whole lot to do in this first season. He, he's, he's really there to like bolster the rest of the story in the same way that like Alex kind of is. But he has these moments where he gets to show off the complexity of Amos. So it's it's cool. It's like you see a little bit of who Amos is. Um, so that was great. Um, and then this quote was um, between Avasarala and I think Carlos is the name. Um, or maybe? Sure. Uh, no, Aaron Wright. She's talking to Aaron Wright, who is like sporadically there. So I just forget when she has a scene with him. But she's talking to Aaron Wright, who is the second in command. I don't know the mm-hmm. title, but something, secretary, under general, whatever. Um, and she says, while Earth and Mars throw sand in each other's faces, the OPA rises in the belt. Um, and just, it's a cool line. Uh, 
Alex says something similar in episode three, Remember the Cant. He talks to Holden mm-hmm. and says, who stands to gain uh, what if Earth and Mars enter a throwdown? Um, but it's interesting, and I don't want to like spoil yet, but it's interesting when you think about the plot of this season and the real reason that Earth and Mars are in this sort of fake war, um, which is to say it's not because of the OPA. It's because of something else. And so to see people come to those conclusions that like Earth and Mars must be tricked into a war, because we've already established, Avasaral has already established that like Mars isn't interested in a war, but now they're being led into one. We've already established Earth and Mars are fighting for something that they don't understand. And people's conclusions are like, well, it must be the OPA. And we're kind of seeing it's probably not. It's somebody else. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, and that was my, my last quote. Um, I do have another quote. It's from Uncle Mateo. He says, what God gives you the right to life's riches? Ooh. And that's such a great line. And I think it it's maybe not a callback, but I think it's definitely in conversation with Anderson Dawes' previous quote or his entire monologue where, you know, talking about how much that Earth has and how they're still able to look past these oceans and these skies and say that they also have a claim on space. Yeah. But it's also... He also says that the inners are living in glass palaces, which I think is a great analogy for the way that these groups have to live side by side because... You know, they can see this this system for what it is. They see it clearly how it's set up, but they can also see how delicate it is because glass oh. can shatter easily. Yeah. And I think that that probably plays into something that we hear repeatedly over this season and the next, just how fragile this, not truce, but how close they are to war. It only, like it says, it only takes a spark. Yeah, it only takes a spark. An unstable combination of three things. Um, I would also think, like, I would also compare it to, like, you know, when people say, like, don't throw stones uh, from glass houses or something? Where it's, it's you know, like the, the pot calling the kettle black. Like, don't. Exactly. Uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> but, yeah. No, that's a really great point. Um, I did also think it was funny when Alex said, you grew up? I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want, well, I wonder about the decision to send Naomi and Holden to this, you know, private looking lounge versus the seedier bar that Amos and Alex go to. What are your thoughts? I don't have any. I just thought it was interesting. Like, maybe Holden decided, you know what? We're going to go someplace quiet. He wants to treat her, wants to wine and dine her, and she's like, I am trying to black out, my friend. Exactly. Uh, I thought it was funny that Holden's like, you know, I'm the most recognizable person in the system right now, but I'm sure this ball cap will shield me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Like, boy... And then we immediately see him getting caught by the spy. Yeah. 
I uh, you saying that the the quote that Alex says where he says I I didn't like you grew up like I I didn't think that was pop- whatever. Um, I just completely forgot what the quote was, but um, <laughs> it reminds me of a quote we'll hear in season four. Um, Ooh yes, a similar between Alex and Amos. There's a a similar situation um, where Alex says something like oh, I wish I grew up like that. But Amos says, no, you don't. And that's sort of a hint at kind of the the growth that Amos will go through. Mm-hmm. But again, like, it's interesting to see how the, the language patterns are repeated in the writing on this show. I thought you were going to reference I was never that young. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but that's a different character. But those two are connected, and that's they're both in season four. So those two are, mm-hmm. when we get there, trust me, I will talk about <laughs> both of them in context. Um, great, great quote, great character. I was like, I was like, are we going to meet that character in this episode? But we're not. I think it's a season two introduction. But soon. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, I do wonder how much of like the disdain that Naomi has shown for Holden up to this point, I wonder how much of it is connected to him being former military. Mm. Yeah, because she wouldn't trust them. Mm-hmm. So it does, you know, I think it that scene, I think, contextualizes some of her anger towards him for logging the call because then he looks like, you know, that guy who prioritizes his cause over the people that are surrounding him. Oh, oh! You're making me think about something that's being some the the monologue in season three. Oh, I can't wait, man. Um, yeah, and and so I guess it's it's good to put a pin on how does Naomi perceive Holden, and how does her perception of him change as he changes? We have so many pins. You know? <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna forget them by the time we get there. Oh. Lastly, you know, Miller ain't have to knock that lady's aroma diffuser off the desk. <laughs> I took it really, per- no, I really did take it personal because I love my aroma diffuser. <laughs> so when he did that, I like clutched at my chest. Let's uh, quickly get through the score. Yes, I, <laughs> I actually, my notes are very messy on this, but um, let's see. I've got Truth, which plays again I, I think it played in episode five uh yes truth played in episode five when miller had a conversation with neville and then truth actually plays again when fred and holden are having that conversation on the rossi and fred is telling holden that he was responsible for sending the scopuli out to intercept the anubis um we also have an impossible burden which is Dawes telling the story of his sister and Dawes actually says it was an impossible burden um we also have a respite respite um which is when Naomi and Holden drink at the bar while Fred Johnson is actually extracting a data chip from the the recently deceased Lopez and I actually have not updated these on Toonfind yet but I by the time this episode goes up I definitely will have updated it and then I had a note about, I think a lifetime of losing might be playing uh, toward the end, but I don't really know like why, because it's a 
very strange title, but maybe it's referring to, you know, the rock bottom theme that's going on. Mm-hmm. The man has to stand up, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it plays toward the end. I, I literally have it with a question mark next to it. So I think it plays toward the end of this episode. Um, and if it does, I will have it updated on, again, on Tune Find by the time this goes up. Uh, and that's our score. There's a lot of stuff that plays that just is not like named and I would love to hear it. But those, interestingly enough, those um, are the, like, they sound the least like the soundtrack. Um, I actually have one more thing. When Mateo dies, when Uncle Mateo dies, this four note arpeggio that I keep hinting at, which like, I think one of these days when we, when we go back and edit these episodes, I should just put it in to get people to understand what I'm saying. But (laughs) once again, to recap the four note arpeggio that you hear in signal, um, that you also hear in the, uh, previous episode when, uh, there's a variation of it when that's not even a good example. I'm like trying to think of a better example. Um, oh, when uh, when Christian tells DeGraff about Mars and the OPA in episode three, we hear it. Um, it also plays when Christian realizes that Mars is not part of this war and they're not working with the OPA again back in episode three. So this four note arpeggio, which I've sort of de- uh, deemed sort of the sound of the system, the sound of the mystery um, that that plays when Mateo dies. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think that makes sense given the theme. That's cool. Yeah. I thank you for tracking this music because I'll recognize parts and then I'll go back and listen to the soundtrack separately and I'm like, oh, I don't know when the hell this was playing. (laughs) Then I think that we are ready to wrap up another long episode. Yes. uh, Here's what we know so far about everything. So um, I guess the new information is that Fred Johnson ordered the ship, the Scopuli, to go from Ceres to intercept with the Anubis. Um, and the Anubis was going from Phoebe Station to Eros, and it was carrying some sort of bioweapon that Mars found on Phoebe Station and was like, something's wrong. And Mars doesn't know what happened. But somebody found a bioweapon on Phoebe Station, tried to cover it up, went on the Anubis to go to Eros, and was intercepted by the Scopuli, which Julie Mao was on which the ship was sent by Fred Johnson. Um, and it's Miller who finds out that there was a bioweapon. Um, so all of that to say that after Julie got on the scopuli, from here we kind of know, we've already talked about what happened multiple times, but the it had a it conflicted with the Anubis, the scopuli got attacked, Julie was held hostage, everybody died on the scopuli, um, and somebody somebody escaped from the scopuli. This is what Fred Johnson says in this episode. Somebody escaped from the scopuli and they go by the name Lionel Polanski. So we can kind of assume that it was Lionel Polanski who had to ensure that there were no survivors on the scopuli because when the uh, when the crew goes to the scopuli and actually as I'm speaking, I'm like, didn't the crew investigate the scopuli the first time around? So where are they going now? I guess they're going to... They're going to Lionel Polanski's last known coordinate. Oh, okay, okay. That's why. I'm like, where are we going? So the crew... Because, like, Lionel Polanski never actually wrote back to Fred, so he doesn't have any idea what's going on. 
Yes. So the crew is going to his last known location, which will take them eventually to Eros. But um, so all that happened. Lionel Polanski, we assume at this point, is the person that sort of vented the scopuli and escaped from it and had to make sure that no one survived. Um, as we know, Mars and the OPA are not working together. Somebody is trying to send Earth and Mars into a war over something that doesn't exist. We don't know why. Uh, we know Ceres Station is getting a little shifted. Things are shifting on Ceres Station. Something is happening with the Belters as well. We don't know why there are OPA people smuggling stealth tech. There's a lot of unknowns that are happening in the midst of all this. Um, and that's what you missed on The Expanse. So thank you guys for listening. And we will see you back here next time for episode seven. See you later.